Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be at. The Michigan State-Purdue game kicks or tips off at 11.15, so I'm going to try and make this one brief. Um, I'm a big college basketball fan, and living now in the central time zone has just kind of messed up my rhythm of these early games on Sunday, and uh, it's very easy for me to kind of complain and grumble about the schedule of my sporting events that I want to watch. And then last week, Nate comes up here and he preaches from Philippians 2, chapter, or 2 verse uh, 14. It says, do all things without grumbling or questioning or complaining. <laughs> you guys been wrestling on this verse a little bit with me? I mean, it was, it's, been, it's been nagging at me all week because I love to grumble and complain and question. It was a central part of my life. And then Nate comes up here and points me to Scripture and says, don't do that anymore. I struggled. I struggled with that. I did think it was interesting that Nate preached that passage a week after the Vikings lost. And then a few hours after he preached that passage, the Cowboys lost. So we all, we all kind of joined together in having a moment of really struggling to obey this passage, because if there's anything that makes us want to grumble and complain, it's our sports teams, right? At least mine certainly do. Well, how'd you guys do grumbling and complaining? A few hours after that message last week, my wife and daughters brought home three foster kittens to our home. I wish I had skipped last Sunday, to be honest. Um, it, I mean, I just had to bite my tongue over and over again because I have a lot to grumble and complain about, it seems. So we're going to continue to kind of think through this a little bit. There was a, there's a continued challenge throughout the book of Philippians to choose contentment over complaining, to choose gratitude over grumbling. And this is difficult. This is difficult because we have a culture and a mindset that just likes to grumble. We just like to grumble. So I was thinking through this passage both during the sermon last week and then throughout this week and appreciate Nate pushing us into this passage and calling us to obey it. But there's a part of me that's like, is this, is this really possible? is a life of contentment and gratitude, like Paul seems to call for here, is it really possible? Is this kind of service and self-giving possible for normal folk like us? And I kind of thought, you know, it'd be helpful to have some good examples of this sort of life. Well, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, is going to give us some very practical examples about what this sort of self-giving, non-complaining life looks like. And I'm so thankful for this passage that I get to preach here this week. So let me pray, and then we'll get started in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Father, your word is good even when it points out our sin. In fact, it's good because it points us towards something greater than our sin. It points us towards Christ, who is glorious and beautiful and good and sufficient, helpful, and a source of joy. So would we see Christ as a source of joy, and would we 
take another step in the direction of being content, grateful people rather than complaining, grumbling people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so I've been a father for 21 years or so, and that means that I have earned the right, I think, to dispense nuggets of parental wisdom about how to properly raise your children to you. Some of these things I have learned from the things that Marianne and I have done well over the years. Most of the things I have learned from mistakes that we have made, and my children will attest to those mistakes. There is no shortage of advice for parents from geezers like me. Parents Magazine, in fact, I looked this up, Parents Magazine boiled down the best parenting advice to the following 11 suggestions. And we're not going to spend time on this, but just quickly, set limits for your kids. Spend quality time with your kids. Be a good role model. Praise your kids. Trust yourself. Teach your kids social skills. Teach gratitude. Make mealtime family time. Say, I love you. Encourage physical activity. Keep up with your kids' routine health care. In other words, make sure they brush their teeth. And there's a no shortage of these sorts of things. You can find all kinds of words of parental wisdom for you. And some of you young parents are now ferociously trying to copy those things down because you're lost like a deer in the headlights. You don't know what to do with children. Some of you veteran parents are like, meh, some of those are good. Some of them you take them or leave them. You know, as long as you don't kill the kid, you do a pretty good job, right? Well, here's one more word of advice from a veteran parent now, and I wish I knew who to credit this to. Don't compare your kids to each other. You guys have heard this one probably before. It's a good word of advice for your kids. Don't say, why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like your sister? Why can't you be like them? Don't ever say that. Um, I'm the oldest of two. It's just me and my sister, my younger sister, and so I didn't have to kind of walk into this. And I can almost feel you younger siblings in this room kind of hear that word of advice and say, amen, brother, preach that one. <laughs> and the rest of us older siblings are like, eh, that's, that's fine, but I suppose. Your kids are different from each other, and comparing them to each other can be harmful. Surprise, your kids are different from each other. We, we had one child thought we figured it out after a few years, and then had another child, and then realized, holy cow, this, this kid functions different than the other one. The third functions different than the other two. The fourth functioned different than the other three. And you had to kind of adjust sometimes. Sometimes, though, even though we're not supposed to compare our kids, we do want to give our children examples of proper behavior. We want to give them examples of bravery or heroism or nobility or compassion or hard work or love or how to hold a fork and a knife correctly at the dinner table. We want to give our kids examples of here's how it's done, but it's tricky, it's tricky to use examples. It's difficult sometimes. If I want to give you an example of how to improve your jump shot, I shouldn't necessarily just tell you to go watch Steph Curry play ball. That's not going to be helpful because you're not, you're not quite at that level. That's not going to help you improve your jump shot. Using examples improperly can actually be kind of defeating. And we need attainable examples. If you've never boiled water or made toast for yourself, but you decide you want to be a great chef, it's not bad necessarily to watch Gordon Ramsay yell at people on TV, <laughs> But 
but it might be good for you to start with someone who can at least show you how to make some craft mac and cheese, right? In some ways, as we get to our passage here, Paul has used examples that might be overwhelming for us if we want to follow his command to let our lives be worthy of the gospel. Paul said that in chapter 1, verse 27, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then as he kind of filled this out, he gave some very practical instruction of what that looks like. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's how we let our lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then, as he continues in chapter 2, he starts to give examples of what this looks like, what this sort of self-sacrificial service looks like. And example number one sets the bar pretty high. His first example is Jesus Christ. Now, that, that's a pretty high bar, right? It's a it's helpful to know that Christ served, but in some ways you could kind of say, ooh, that kind of feels like an older brother comparison there. I don't know if I can ever live up to that, and you won't. Jesus is a great example, but he's not just an example. He is also our salvation. He's also the source of our forgiveness when we fall short. So maybe you kind of read through that glorious hymn at the beginning of chapter 2 and say, okay, that's, that's great. I need to to, to serve like Christ, but is there maybe a more human example of this, perhaps from somebody who is not divine? And so Paul's second example that we looked at last week is himself. It's the Apostle Paul himself. And you might say, ah, okay, remember you said examples are tricky here. I mean, this is Paul. This is Paul, the man who Jesus showed up to on the road to Damascus and knocked him off his horse, called him to himself and called him into ministry. The man who ascended to the third heaven. And I'm supposed to sacrifice like Paul? I mean, that, that again seems like an older brother comparison, doesn't it? I don't have that kind of experience. Is there another example? So, welcome to today's text. Verse 19, example number three, Timothy. Here's what Paul says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, first notice, just, just notice the humanity in this passage. Sometimes we think that Paul's letters are just these theological treatises with these statements of grand theology, and there is that in them. But these are personal letters from one man to a church that he loved, talking about another guy that Paul loved and cared for deeply. There's a relational affection and love here. Paul's letters are written from a veteran believer to an individual, or in this case, a church who he dearly loves, often speaking about someone else that he dearly loves. There's just this humanity that is in Paul's letter that sometimes we want to 
push aside and say, like, what's the theological truth here? That's good, but don't miss the, the relational nature of this. Paul liked having Timothy beside him. There's no one like Timothy, he says in verse 20. Because unlike the vast majority of the world's population, Timothy somehow genuinely concerned, is genuinely concerned for other people's welfare. You see that in the text there? Timothy is genuinely concerned for other people. It's rare to meet someone like that, isn't it? So often in our interactions, we are subtly, or maybe not so subtly, positioning ourselves to receive glory or benefit or recognition. We may ask somebody, and maybe you did that this morning, how are you? But if someone actually answers with something more than fine, we're taken off guard. (laughs) Actually, I actually have to listen here, don't I? Uh, Is there a place to sit down? For the record, I'm not very good with people sometimes, and so when you do answer that question and fill it out, it can be surprising. Genuinely concerned for other people's welfare. I'm shocked by that statement. Timothy just sounds like the kind of dude you want to be with. You want to have this guy hanging out with you. He's genuinely concerned for others' welfare. For Paul, this meant that Timothy was currently, voluntarily serving him while he was under house arrest. Timothy probably had to go out and get some groceries. Timothy would care for Paul, bring him some necessary things, bring him news of what's happening around town. Timothy would, uh, uh, would write out what Paul was writing to other churches, so he'd be a, kind of a, a, a recorder, a dictator for him, uh, as Paul dictated. Uh, Timothy had a lot of work, and he voluntarily just served Paul in that way. Even in the book of Philippians, Timothy gets credit as the co-author of this book, though it's much, uh, as we see, it's, it's very much from Paul himself. Timothy was part of that writing process, serving Paul, helping Paul. Timothy was carefully attending to Paul's needs, like a loving, attentive, devoted son with a father he loves dearly. And you can hear the affection that Paul has for Timothy. Son, he calls him. But here's the amazing thing. What does Paul want to do with Timothy? This man who is beside him and serving him and helping him. He wants to send him away. That's kind of shocking, isn't it? Paul wants to send Timothy away. He says it twice in verse, uh, uh, verse 19 and then again in verse 23. I hope to send him to you. Now, now, why would you send a guy like this away? If you get a friend like this, you want to put, keep that guy close, don't you? A few weeks ago, I had a uh, 6 a.m. flight, an international flight. I was going to be gone for a week, so I didn't really want to pay for parking for an entire week. It's just a little bit outside of my budget for that sort of thing. There's not a lot of Uber or Lyft drivers that come at 4 o'clock in the morning to Carver. Um, couldn't find anybody. I needed a ride to the airport at 4 a.m. And if I asked most of you for that ride, you'd likely find an excuse to get out of it, right? Like, ooh, um, I don't think I'm available at that time. There would be a whole lot of grumbling if you did, uh, did agree to give me a ride, right? Like, I mean, I was grumbling when I got picked up, but not, not my friend John, and I'm, 
probably embarrassing him. John, I call up and he says, sure, no problem. Uh, is 4 a.m. early enough though? Do you, do you want to get there earlier? Should I be there at 3.30? In my selfishness, I don't want to send a guy like that to other people. I want that guy on retainer, don't you? You want that kind of friend. You, you, we used to have speed dial on our phones. You remember that? That's a top of a list speed dial kind of guy. Now you just tell Siri to call somebody or whatever. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does that look like? It's Timothy. That's what Timothy does here, serving Paul, helping Paul, being willing to go back to Philippi to serve the church there. The Philippian church needed pastoral help, and absent Paul, who's unavailable because he's arrested right now, Timothy is the type of guy, the type of pastor who can carefully care for the church through their disagreements and struggles. And Paul realizes that that's important. And so he's willing to send this guy who's waiting on him and caring for him back to Philippi because Paul is more concerned about the mission of the gospel and others than he is about himself. He sends out his best guy. And he tells the Philippian church, you know Timothy's proven worth. Maybe you don't know much about Timothy, so let me give you a short biographical sketch pulled from the book of Acts, First and Second Timothy letters, and a few other places in Scripture. Timothy was raised in the city of Lystra, which is kind of south-central Turkey now. His mother was a lady named Eunice, and Eunice was a Jewish woman who taught Timothy the Old Testament from when he was a very young age. And Paul would say that Timothy was very familiar with the Scriptures. Timothy's father, however, was not Jewish. His father was a Greek man and likely an unbeliever. Timothy and his mother Eunice likely believed in the gospel of Jesus when Paul came to Lystra on his first missionary journey. Paul appointed elders, started a church in Lystra, and moved on to another place, and Timothy matured in the faith under those elders and in that church after Paul had left, and as Paul came around on his second and third and fourth missionary journeys, he specifically asked for Timothy to come with him as a co-worker and fellow minister. And so Timothy joined Paul for his second, third, and fourth missionary journeys, and that would include caring for this aging apostle while he was in prison. At times, Timothy ministered alongside Paul. At times, he was in jail with Paul. At times, he suffered with Paul. And at times, he was sent to various communities without Paul. Timothy had to go over here while Paul moved over here, and then they reconnected somewhere else. But they always came back together, these dear friends, father-son relationship. Timothy became a deeply trusted co-worker of Paul's, a devoted spiritual son to Paul. And Paul says, there's no one like him. You just don't find that kind of person very often. Some have assumed that Timothy was timid or cowardly because Paul has to call him to bold action at times. Maybe, I don't know if that's true. It's a little bit of reading into the text, perhaps. Some have suggested that Timothy was sickly because Paul at one time has to uh, instruct him about his health, but that's reading into it a little bit too much, perhaps. A bit of conjecture, conjecture trying to fill out Timothy's personality, perhaps. If you doubt Timothy's devotion, or need further proof, let me direct you to Acts chapter 16, verse 3. And this is going to get a little uncomfortable for a second, if you're all right with that. Here's what Acts chapter 16, verse 3 says. 
Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, if you question a man's devotion, and you read that verse, stop questioning his devotion. Timothy is a devoted man. It's, I mean, in order to minister among a Jewish population who knew Timothy had a Greek father, Paul circumcised Timothy. Yikes, right? Now, thankfully, we don't get a lot of details about this episode. Not all of Paul's companions, not all of Paul's Greek companions had to go through this. We know that Titus did not have to go through this initiation. Timothy, though, took one for the team because of his devotion to the gospel movement. He considered others more important than himself, and he was willing to to go to great lengths for that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul says I a lot there, but I think Timothy might have one-upped him on that one. Becoming all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. This is the kind of guy Timothy was left Lystra, left his home, left his family, and suffered for the sake of the gospel, genuinely concerned for others' welfare. Paul would say in verse 21, Philippians chapter 2, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy sought the interest of Jesus Christ, and he was willing to do seemingly anything for the cause of Jesus Christ, without grumbling, without complaining. You know Timothy's proven worth, Paul says to the Philippian church. Well, what does it look like to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others? Timothy's example shines forward. Here's a man who devoted himself to the cause of Christ. Jesus is an example, Paul is an example, Timothy is an example, but still, perhaps, you're a little uncomfortable, and another example would help because by Paul's own admission, there's no one else like Timothy. So, how do we follow in those footsteps, right? Timothy's a full-time gospel worker, he's a missionary pastor, we're not all that. We haven't all been called into vocational ministry like Paul and Timothy were. Some of us are electricians and salespeople and teachers, computer programmers and stay-at-home moms and truck drivers. If we're going to let our lives be worthy of the gospel, does that mean we need to leave everything behind for the sake of Jesus Christ? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some will, and church history is filled with stories of those who have given everything for the cause of the gospel, gone to new places to plant churches and reach people with the news of Jesus Christ. I have the the joy of knowing some of those folks. Um, My friends Chris and Julie Mobs in northern Uganda are an example for that. Justin knows them as well a little bit. They left their home in Alabama and have moved to northern Uganda live on this little compound, serving the Acholi people there, planting churches, training pastors, and now trying to reach those in Sudan with the gospel as well. Now, we're not all called to that. That's not all of us. 
Jesus, Paul, Timothy, is there a regular person who can serve as an example of sacrificial living? Well, let me introduce you to Epaphroditus, because I think he's going to scratch that itch here. Verse 20, um, 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now notice once again the affection that Paul expresses here. Epaphroditus, who he probably didn't know nearly as well as Timothy, is called his brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier, a messenger and a minister to my need. Not just Paul, the Philippian church would rejoice at seeing him again. There's this deep affection among the people of God expressed in the book of Philippians here. And in some ways, if I could take a little aside here, affectionate, caring relationships help those of us who struggle with anxiety. Do you see that? Verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Paul's concerned for the church in Philippi, and he wants to send Epaphroditus so that he can be less anxious. So he knows the church is being cared for and has received his instructions, has received this letter itself. Listen, some of us who struggle with anxiety, and I put myself in that category often, We just need to be with good, affectionate, Christ-loving people more often. There's a temptation in our anxiety to remove ourselves from people. And I like that because I'm an introvert. (laughs) But the need for those of us when we're anxious, when we're worried, when we're concerned, is to find people, be with people who can point you to Christ. And that that will relieve some of Paul's anxiety. Well, this mention and a brief mention at the end of the letter are all that we hear about Epaphroditus. He was not an apostle like Paul. He probably was not a pastor like Timothy. He was a Philippian guy who carried a letter, carried some money, carried a care package to Paul when communication was desperately needed. And he almost died on the journey. And then he carried Paul's letter, the book of Philippians that we have now, he carried this letter back to the Philippian church where he probably took his trade back up and served as part of a local church. There's a a great book called A Distant Presence. I can't remember the author at this time, but it's a narrative commentary on the book of Philippians where the author kind of imagines the interaction between all these folks. And he imagines Epaphroditus as a potter who just... He's the guy that needed to take the letter. Somebody needed to go, and Epaphroditus said, I'll do it, and went, and almost died, and then came back. He's just a normal guy. This is all we know about him. Epaphroditus' name means belonging to Aphrodite. You can hear that word Aphrodite in Epaphroditus, can't you? 
It means, his name means belonging to Aphrodite, which means that he was named after or, or named in connection to the Greek goddess of love and beauty. So he was born, in all likelihood, of pagan origins, at some point in his life was converted, likely under Paul's ministry or under the ministry of the church of, the, of Philippi, and he served the church, not necessarily as a teacher or a pastor, not necessarily as a church planter or a cross-cultural missionary, he served the church as a mailman. And that was necessary and important. Because without Epaphroditus, faithful service, you would not have a coffee mug in your cupboard that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's true. That's from Philippians. And the only reason you have Philippians is because Epaphroditus was willing to carry it through some dangerous territory. Praise God for the Epaphroditus Epaphroditus of this world. Not sure what the plural of Epaphroditus is. We have this letter from Paul to the Philippian church because a guy named Epaphroditus risked his life, embarked on a dangerous journey, nearly died, then took the opposite journey back. Risking his life, Paul says, to complete what was lacking in the Philippians' service. Well, what part was incomplete? The Philippians had concern for Paul. They had problems that they wanted to talk about with Paul. They had a gift that they wanted to give to Paul, but they were not with Paul. So their, their, um, their, their ministry, their service to Paul was incomplete because somebody had to go from Philippi to Rome. And that guy was Epaphroditus. The delivery of the gift and letter was done by a man who was devoted not to Aphrodite, but to Jesus and his church. The church needs great teachers. It needs church planters and missionaries and gifted evangelists. It also needs folks who are willing to jump in and help get a job done. And Epaphroditus was that kind of guy. Somebody in the church was working on a roof repair project. I'm guessing Epaphroditus would have been there to help. Need some help harvesting the last of your grain? Epaphroditus would likely sign up first. You need a second grade Sunday school teacher. Epaphroditus loves to help. He loves kids. You need someone to learn drums for the worship team. Well, Epaphroditus, aren't you doing enough? Come on, man. Give somebody else a chance to serve here. You need someone to take a letter and a gift to Paul in Rome across treacherous seas and bandit-filled mountain paths. Do we even need to ask who's going to do it? You need a 4 a.m. ride to the airport. Well, thankfully, Epaphroditus is there. But it's not just volunteering that Epaphroditus does. He got sick, almost died. And what happened when he was sick and almost died? Was he concerned for his health? He was distressed because the Philippians heard he was ill. There's a unique type of person that is more concerned about other people when they're sick than they are about their own life or health. It's rare, again, but that's the type of person Epaphroditus wants. Not looking to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, Paul, just, he just had the right guys with him, didn't he? He's a lucky man to, get, to have genuinely good guys like Epaphroditus and Timothy to serve him during his imprisonment. If you've got to be in prison and under house arrest, get yourself a Timothy and Epaphroditus, I would suggest. But because Paul was consumed by something greater than his own comfort and own interest, 
He was constantly sending the best guys away from him. He wasn't saying, bring me Timothy, bring me Epaphroditus, bring me, bring me, bring me, bring me, bring me. He was saying, I hope to send them. Now, later in the end of 2 Timothy, he does say, I hope to see Timothy again. As Paul's nearing his death, he wants to see Timothy again. So there is a time when you want to be with people. You don't have to just push everybody away. But Paul, in his generosity, his relational generosity, sends people to other churches for the good of God's church because he was consumed by something greater than his own interest. Listen, the Christian life is not about finding a comfortable little church that checks all of our boxes, makes us smile on Sundays, and then settling down comfortably. That is not the Christian life. Jesus has saved us, his people, through his blood and sacrifice. And he now calls us to a life of joy in that. We have been saved by grace through faith, And that frees us to give and risk and sacrifice for others because we're secure in Christ. And Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul knew this and lived it out and serve as examples to us. Timothy and Epaphroditus, along with Jesus and Paul, are examples of how the gospel frees us from ourselves toward joyful, sacrificial living. Having practical examples of what a life devoted to Jesus looks like is so helpful. We don't just approach this in a conceptual, abstract manner. We get two guys here on display who gave much without grumbling or complaining. We need these sorts of exemplary lives. After returning from the Philippines a week and a half ago, and by the way, Do you know how difficult it is to go to the Philippines while you're preaching through Philippians and get spelling and pronunciation correct? I think I've done it this morning, but I've been worried to death that I was going to say Philippines 2-5 or I went to the Philippians. Um, Man, it was just, that's been a rough one for me this morning. But a week and a half ago, I went to the Philippines um, and I started, came back and um, started reading a few books about World War II in the Philippines. One of the little stories that I read during, the, the, um, during some reading was that the first Medal of Honor in the war in the Philippines, World War II, was awarded to a Georgia boy named Alexander Nininger. Nininger, that's him up there. And here's how his Medal of Honor citation reads. Four, conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty in action with the enemy near Abu Kai, Bataan, Philippine Islands, on 12 January 1942. This officer, though assigned to another company not then engaged in combat, voluntarily attached himself to Company K, same regiment, while that unit was being attacked by enemy force superior in firepower. Enemy snipers in trees and foxholes had stopped a counterattack to regain part of the position. In hand-to-hand fighting, which followed, 2nd Lieutenant Nininger repeatedly forced his way to and into the hostile position. Though exposed to heavy enemy fire, he continued to attack with rifle and hand grenades and succeeded in destroying several enemy groups in foxholes and enemy snipers. Although wounded three times, he continued his attacks until he was killed after pushing alone far within the enemy position. 
When his body was found after recapture of the position, one enemy officer and two enemy soldiers lay dead around him. So I kind of went on this rabbit trail then, looking at Medal of Honor stories and just being in awe of the sacrifice and bravery that soldiers would go through. Why does the U.S. give out a Medal of Honor? Why do they honor such men as their highest award in the military? To honor such men and women, they do it because they deserve it, right? Ninninger just gave himself literally for the cause. But they also serve as examples of how to give yourself to a greater cause. The Philippines were liberated, not just by guys like Ninninger. It also took people who were willing to carry a letter, though. Not just by those who earned medals of honor, but those who would carry a letter from Douglas MacArthur to Manuel Quezon, or drive a truck from a supply depot to the front line, or sit by a wounded Marine's bedside for months like some unknown Filipino nurse did with my grandfather 80 years ago. Not every exemplary life receives this medal of honor. But they should. It's tricky to use examples. It's tricky. But when used properly, they're helpful. And I think Philippians 2, 19 to 30, gives us two very practical, attainable examples of people whose life was devoted to the cause of Jesus Christ, who put others' interests ahead of their own. I first preached through Philippians in about 2006 or so at our little church plant in Verona, Wisconsin. And I remember getting to this section of Philippians and uh, about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and I was feeling less than excited about this passage. I mean, there's no high Christology of the earlier part of chapter 2. There's not this great hymn there. Where's the rich theological implications of chapter 1 or the deep pastoral counsel of chapter 4? Where's the coffee cup verses? They're not in this passage, are they? This section seemed, you know, to be honest, a little boring. It's about two guys. Well, I also used to think that that Philippians' main theme was joy. Then I thought it was unity. And as a missionary who was raising funds, I found Philippians quite helpful in showing a church generously supporting a missionary. There's lots of themes in Philippians, but Philippians gives us these important themes and lessons and truth about unity and joy and partnership. But as we've been studying this book over the last few months, I'm realizing that the book is about something bigger than any of those one themes. Those are true joy, unity, partnership. But let me try to capture the theme of Philippians. And then as you hear this, think through Timothy and Epaphroditus as men who understood this and lived it. The gospel of Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension has completely changed how his people live and what they value. We are no longer slaves to our selfish desires, but we live for a greater cause, to find joy in Christ and to make Christ known. And that mission will at times require sacrifice, like a trip to Rome to visit an old man in jail or writing a check for Paul's welfare or leaving your family at Lystra. It may require sacrifice, and while that seems like a net loss, in Christ it is a net gain. Everything, according to chapter 3, verse 8, is lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
And Paul will say in chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We joyfully wait and suffer and serve. While we wait, we live as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And this requires living not just for ourselves, but for Christ and others. Like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, so helpfully exemplified. Putting those pieces of Philippians' greater message together results then in joy, in contentment, in partnership, in unity. We don't start with joy and contentment. We arrive there based on the good news of Jesus Christ. So my friends, we're part of something cosmically and eternally huge. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom. So let's risk much for the gospel. Let's give of ourselves. Let's joyfully accept suffering for the cause of Christ. Let's volunteer for service. And let's keep sending friends out to serve others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have gone to the cross in our place. That you served us first. We don't serve in order to earn your favor. Because you have favored us in Christ Jesus, we now respond with joyful service. And Lord, you have called many to yourself, including Timothy and Epaphroditus, one well-known, one not so well-known. And we thank you for men and women like this who have joyfully and sacrificially served your church over the years. Lord, help us to find joy in Christ's gospel. And as we joyfully find ourselves in the gospel, may our lives be given to that cause. Help us to joyfully serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.